Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here. We uh, are very thankful to be back home. Uh, it was a blessing to be able to, to go visit with family, Eric and Jennifer. Say hi to everyone, by the way. Um, but it is a great blessing to have uh, a spiritual family such as this uh, that we can come back to, that we can spend time together stirring one another up to loving good works today. If you will, uh, open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. If they're not already open there, we are going to be focusing on this text to di- together today. If you've been keeping up with your Bible reading, we just recently read over uh, 1 Kings 19, I, I believe on, on Thursday. I want to talk about the topic of discouragement as we see the story about Elijah here. D- discouragement is one of Satan's most powerful tools against us. Because it's not just a vice that targets the weak or the apathetic. In fact, discouragement, maybe more often, targets those who are very zealous, are very dedicated to the Lord. Uh, The more potential damage Satan can cause to them through discouragement. Uh, The higher you you fly, the the farther uh, or the harder you fall. And there can be many different reasons for discouragement, but, but I think there are usually some common threads uh, in discouragement. Feelings of failure, maybe disillusionment or hopelessness, feeling further effort is pointless, feeling like you are all alone, feeling like no one else cares the way that you care, or no one else understands what you're going through, no one has worked as hard or been as zealous as you, but it's all been for nothing. As we see throughout the scriptures, there are many great men and women of faith who went through very difficult times of discouragement, perhaps none illustrating that better than this passage in Elijah's life as he struggles with discouragement. And I think as we read this story in 1 Kings 19, it might be helpful to remember the context of 1 Kings 18, what's just happened in Elijah's life. You may remember during the reign of Ahab that uh, there's a time where Elijah prophesies that there's going to be a drought for three and a half years. And God provides for Elijah throughout that drought uh, at the the brook uh, Cherith. He sends ravens to provide for his food. Eventually, uh, Elijah ends up being provided by the widow of Zarephath. And then at the end of this drought, Elijah finally presents himself to King Ahab once again. And we see at Mount Carmel, Elijah has somewhat of a showdown between him and, or rather, the Lord and the prophets of Baal. And they both put out their sacrifices and say, let's see who truly is God. You call out to your God and we'll see if he responds. We'll see if he sends down fire to to, uh, consume this sacrifice. And then I'll call out to my God, the Lord, Jehovah. And after the prophets of Baal have spent much of the day crying out to their God with no answer, Elijah comes up and he pours water over the altar. Time and time again, barrel after barrel of water. And yet he calls on the Lord. And God not only sends down fire to consume the sacrifice, but the wood and the stones and the very dust underneath the the altar that has been built, all the water being dried up, showing God's great power. At this point, Elijah um, commands that the prophets of Baal be killed, the 450 prophets. Uh, And yet, you you might think this mountaintop moment in Elijah's life uh, would spark a spiritual revival in Israel. 
They've seen the power of God. They've seen the, the powerlessness of their false gods. And yet, at the beginning of chapter 19, we don't see any of that revival. What Elijah gets instead is a death threat. Jezebel essentially says, Elijah, you're a dead man. And so this sparks uh, a time of great discouragement and disillusionment in Elijah's life. He flees south into the wilderness, wanders for 40 days until he reaches Mount Sinai and enters a cave. And notice what Luke read for us in verse 10 here, describing uh, Elijah's attitude and, and emotions at this point. In verse 10 of 1 Kings 19, it says, He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Here we get a perfect picture of what discouragement can do. In a sense, discouragement may... Uh, just be lonely zeal, so to speak. And Elijah has not ceased to be passionate for the Lord and his work, but he feels that it has not done any good, that he is the only one left and that his situation is hopeless. Well, how does Elijah get out of the cave and back to the Lord's work? What is God's solution to his depression here? What was it Elijah needed to hear? What is it that you and I need to hear during our times of discouragement? Uh, I, I hope our, our study today will help us keep the fires of zeal burning bright no matter what our circumstances and help us keep our zeal from being quenched by discouragement. First of all, we see the Lord's compassion in this passage. I want you to notice here in verse 3 through 8, um, God's response to this. When Elijah flees in fear, God does not punish him. God does not even primarily rebuke or reprimand him for this. God provides for him. Think for a moment about some other prophets. Think about uh, the prophet Jonah. When he fled from the Lord, when God told him, I want you to go preach to the people of Nineveh, and Jonah says, nope, I'm going the other direction. Well, God sends a storm to turn him around, and Jonah basically tries to sacrifice himself rather than go do what God wanted him to do, and yet God doesn't even allow him to kill himself. God sends a great fish to swallow him up and spit him back out and say, okay, now you're going to go do my work. You might think about a prophet like Balaam that we talked about recently in our, our Sunday Bible class, who uh, ends up seeking the, uh, the wealth of King Balak and wants to go and curse God's people so that he can get paid, uh, contrary to what God desires of him. And when, Balak, uh, when Balaam does end up going, God sends an angel to stand in his way. His donkey sees it, he doesn't. Uh, and yet we see God making it very clear that he is not in support of what Balaam is doing, that he does not want Balaam to go and curse uh, his people. Well, God sends an angel to Elijah, but he doesn't turn him around. He doesn't send him back, at least not at first. In fact, God sends him an angel to provide for his journey. I, I want you to, to notice here um, that the angel says there in verse uh, 5, Arise and eat. 
Verse 6, And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Why, why is the angel coming and providing him this food? Why is he telling him to rest? Because he's got a journey ahead of him. A journey that God is empowering him for, that God is ultimately directing him on. It's not that Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb as it's also called, just happened to be the best place for Elijah to go hide from Jezebel. No, this is a place of great significance in Israel's relationship with the Lord. And so God ultimately empowers him and directs him 40 days through the wilderness, providing for his needs, so that he can come to Mount Sinai and have this counseling session, so to speak, with the Lord. Um, that sounds a lot like God providing for his people 40 years in the wilderness, doesn't it? Um, and so we see God's great compassion here. God understands our need for rest and renewal at times and is patient and compassionate towards us as we struggle with discouragement. God is going to have some things to say to Elijah, but first, initially, God provides for his need for rest and renewal here. Uh, and God is sympathetic towards that. And we see other passages throughout the scripture that reinforce this idea to us. Psalm 103, verse 13 and 14. We read of the Lord, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear, fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but, but dust. God understands because he created us and he knows how he created us. He created us from the very dust of the earth. He created our bodies. Therefore, he knows and understands our need for nourishment, our need for rest, our, our need for times of refreshment. And not only that, he created our hearts. He knows our need for comfort, our need for encouragement, renewal, and support. Therefore, he's gracious to us when we stumble. He's patient with us when we are weak. He's there for us when we need to lean upon him as we're struggling and discouraged. In fact, he wants us in our weakness and in our discouragement to look to him for comfort and strength. And not only is God understanding towards our discouragement because he created us, but also because he has experienced it himself. Jesus came down, took on flesh, understanding what it is to be a human. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, we read, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why is it that we can draw near to God with confidence, seeking his grace and seeking his mercy. Well, here we're told that he understands. He sympathizes with, with our weakness. Jesus understands what it is like to be tempted, to experience the needs and limitations of the flesh, to suffer the fullness of pain and agony that this world can dish out, both physically and emotionally. And so that sympathy can provide us confidence in drawing near to God during times of discouragement, during our time of need. It's okay to feel discouraged. It's okay to feel burnt out. We are weak. And at times, we may uh, feel that, that weakness very uh, strongly. In Isaiah chapter 40, 
verse 30 and 31, this passage of comfort reassures us, saying, Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Yes, even youths, even those who may have great energy and strength, are going to grow weary. We are going to have times uh, of weakness, of discouragement. And yet, what is the solution? God wants us to wait on him. God wants us to look to him for strength. It's interesting here, it says they will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Uh, That very strongly connects with Elijah's story here in chapter 18. God empowers him to run ahead of Ahab's chariot. And God provides for him to walk for 40 days in the wilderness without becoming weary as he comes to Mount Sinai here. But that's not all that we need to hear. We need to understand that that God created us weak, that God created us as dependent beings upon him. Uh, But God has more to say to Elijah. We also need to understand God's methods. Notice in verse 9 through 12, starting in verse 9, it says, There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I think if it is in fact the case that God empowered him for this journey, that the angel is giving him what he needs to make this journey, I I don't think that Elijah is here apart from the will of the Lord. But it seems that God is maybe getting him to think about why he's here. It it might be similar to if you walked into a a psychiatrist's office and they said, okay, why are you here today? (laughs) Uh, here God is giving Elijah a a little bit of a counseling session. We see that statement in verse 10 that we already looked at. Elijah describing his discouragement, uh, his loneliness, feelings of, of burnt out, being burnt out of pointlessness. But God's prescription ultimately is a revelation of his glory, a reminder of who he is and how he works. Look in verse 11 and 12. In verse 11, it says, And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. Uh, But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a low whispering. Some versions say a still, small voice. Here God shows his great power uh, in this mighty wind, in this earthquake, in this fire, very reminiscent of how God appeared to his people on Mount Sinai, this consuming fire, shaking the foundations of that mountain. And yet, it makes it very clear to us that God was not in the wind. God was not in the the earthquake, God was not in the fire. That wasn't primarily how he was revealing his presence. In contrast, we're told that there was a small voice, a small whispering, a gentle blowing. And it seems in contrast that that's where God's presence is shown to Elijah. What's the point 
of this revelation. Certainly God has revealed himself in great and mighty and powerful ways in the past. We already made reference to how he had revealed himself to his people at Mount Sinai earlier. Why now is that not where his presence is? I think this is all part of the point that God is teaching Elijah here. It's not simply a reminder of his power, because Elijah is aware that the Lord's presence is not found in these earth-shattering events. God reveals himself instead in this gentle blowing, this still, small voice. Consider Elijah's recent earth-shattering experience at Mount Carmel. Um, Maybe he was tempted to think that that was the way God's work was going to be accomplished. And since there was no visible fruit, his work for the Lord had failed. You know, God's going to, to accomplish his work and show his glory in these mountaintop moments in sending fire down onto Mount Carmel. And yet, well, that didn't seem to actually do anything. That didn't seem to bring about any renewal or revival. Perhaps God is showing Elijah here that I don't always work in the wind and the fire and the earthquakes of life. Some of the greatest victories in the Lord's work are going to be barely noticeable to the public eye. Seemingly small, insignificant, and lowly. In fact, this is a theme throughout the scriptures. Uh, I call your attention to a passage in Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is prophesying during the time period where Zerubbabel is rebuilding the temple. And you may remember in the book of Ezra, as he is rebuilding the temple, you know, the, the people of Israel are only a small remnant of what they used to be coming back from captivity. And the temple itself is, is a small uh, picture of what this great temple used to be. In fact, when it's built, the people who remember the old temple weep at how small and insignificant it is in comparison to what it used to be. Well, notice during that time period, what God's message to Zerubbabel is here in Zechariah 4 and verse 6. It says, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The way that this endeavor is going to be successful is not by things that appear to be great and mighty and powerful and from human eyes. What's important is that you are being fueled and nourished by my spirit. I think that's very similar to the point that we see here to Elijah. And God often uses the small and the insignificant. Remember back in the book of Genesis, in the days of Joseph, when a young boy is sold into slavery and even put into prison, and yet God uses that young boy to become second in command of Pharaoh to deliver his people. Think about David, a small shepherd boy, the youngest in his family, and yet God uses him and lifts him up to be a king in Israel. God shows us time and time again, this is the way he works. God using the apostles, who were not men who had been greatly educated and equipped for this work. They're fishermen, tax collectors. And yet God empowers those who might seem weak and small from human eyes. We see the same concept in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Remember Paul Uh, when he talks about struggling with some thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what this was, but it was something that Saul or Paul uh, thought was limiting his work for the Lord. Um, That if if only this this 
physical limitation would be taken away, then I'd be able to do so much greater work for the Lord. Well, what's God's response to him? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, he says, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You know, we might think, well, God's work is best going to be accomplished by these things that look big and impressive to human eyes. We, we, we see, you know, these great businesses and endeavors around us, and we want to follow that pattern as a church. We, we want to do things that are impressive, that are showy, that, that show people, uh, you know, how, how great this work is that we're doing. Well, often how God accomplishes his work is in ways that are much more insignificant and small to human eyes. That through human weakness, the power of Christ is truly shown. God doesn't see things the way we do. He doesn't measure success by our standards. We may glory in the great outward manifestations and monumental occasions of life, but God glories in the small, unnoticed victories won within the human heart from day to day. And the greatest demonstration of this is the gospel itself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, remember what's said here about the gospel. Starting in verse 23, it says, But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The cross of Jesus seems foolish to the world, seems weak to the world. A crucified Messiah is a failed Messiah. A, a dead God is a weak God. That doesn't look powerful and successful and glorious, and yet it's in the seemingly foolishness and weak that God shows forth his glory, his power to save. Elijah felt that he had failed because his mountaintop moment had not yielded any visible fruit. But God did not just work in the loud and powerful ways. And Elijah needed to understand that God's work was still being accomplished, one heart, one soul at a time, as it always had been. When we feel that our work is not yielding the big and dramatic results we would like to see, we must trust that God is still working, and the small day-to-day, lowly, even imperceptible parts of life. And yet Elijah's lesson doesn't end there either. Notice God has more to say to him. In verse 13, God repeats his question to Elijah. Verse 13, it says, And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. You notice, it's the same question, and it's the same answer. Why is that? You know, I I can't imagine that, that anybody could come in contact with the very presence of God and not be changed by it. Has nothing changed in Elijah's heart? You know, I, I wonder if his tone of voice might be a little bit different at this point. 
if we, if we could hear that. But I think perhaps one of the main points that we need to recognize is that this revelation of God's glory didn't just make the emotions go away. It wasn't the, the magic flip of the switch that now Elijah feels all better, and now he's not struggling anymore. That's all he needed. We're ready to go. No, Elijah is still struggling. Elijah is a man like us, as we're told in James chapter 5. And even though this is very much the lesson that Elijah needed to hear, it didn't just magically make his emotions go away. It's not that God gives us some some magic pill, some magic switch that just makes us never have to deal with discouragement again. Discouragement is going to be something that we're going to have to deal with and that we're going to have to trust God through. I think that's exactly what we're seeing in Elijah's life. Yes, he's still struggling. Yes, he did need to see that things weren't working the way he thought they were, that God is still working, even in ways that that are unnoticeable to the human eye. But Elijah needed more than just that. Notice God's words to him now, starting in verse 15. It says, And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place. Elijah says, I'm still struggling. And God says, I know. Get to work. (laughs) You have work to do. Sometimes when we are struggling, it's not that we need to wait until those feelings go away to then do the Lord's work. It's not that we can continue to to wallow in self-pity until God takes those emotions away. No, we we need to recognize that God is compassionate towards that. We need to find comfort in his grace and his mercy and his patience. We need to, to try to make sure that we have a correct perspective on how he's working in our life. But then we need to get to work. We need to continue to pursue God's purposes even through our struggles. You may feel like you've done all that you can do, but that doesn't mean that God's done with you. God wanted Elijah to go on to anoint others to continue his work. Many times when we get discouraged, we start wallowing in our self-pity. We rehearse our failures and our hardships and our sorrows over and over again in our minds, and we can become consumed with our own emotions. And part of God's solution is you need to get outside of yourself. Yes, you may continue to feel that way, but you need to start focusing on other things, on other people, on the work that I've given you to do. We see this in Paul the Apostle's life. Notice in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, starting verse 11. Remember, Paul is writing this as he's in prison. That's certainly not where he wants to be. Uh, He wants to be out doing the Lord's work, right? What does he say to these brethren? Starting verse 11, he says, For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know, Paul had plenty of reasons to be discouraged. 
just about everywhere that Paul went, he left town because they chased him out of town. He talks about, in 2 Corinthians, the many sufferings that he went through. But he says here that I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance. He says there in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Often we hear that passage and we think I can accomplish great things through Christ. Well, really what Paul's talking about is I can suffer great things through Christ. I can go through times of hunger and need and persecution because of him who strengthens me. Well, how? What was the secret? What was it that that Christ gave him to, to strengthen him through that kind of discouragement and suffering? Well, look earlier in the book, in Philippians chapter 1. As Paul is in prison here, he's telling these brethren in Philippi about his experience in prison. What does he say? He says, now I want you to know, brethren... That my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment and the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Does does Paul write to them and say, brethren, I want you to know how hard this is. I want you to know how discouraging it is to be in prison here. I want you to know how much I've sacrificed. I want you to know how I'm, uh, you know, what the emotions that I'm dealing with. No, that's not where his focus is. This is, I want you to know that God has worked this out for his purposes, for the furtherance of the gospel. What was it about Paul's relationship with Christ that empowered him, that strengthened him to suffer great things? It was a focus no longer on himself, but on Christ. It didn't matter what he was going through. It didn't matter the emotions that he was dealing with. As long as God's purposes were being accomplished within his life, that's what mattered. And that's where Paul's focus was. Paul says later on in the same chapter, verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. If you were to be asked, today whether or not you would like to go ahead and depart and be with Christ or or remain here on earth, what kind of reasons would you give for perhaps wanting to stay here? I think many times we we might think, well, you know, there's a lot more that I want to experience. You know, I want want to spend a lot more time with my family. There, There are a lot of sites that I haven't seen yet. You know, I want to finally get to a point where I can enjoy retirement. That's not what Paul says. Paul says that the main reason that I would want to remain on the flesh is so that I can continue in fruitful labor for the Lord. His life was completely consumed in what God's purpose and God's goal and God's dreams for him were. He says in Galatians 2 verse 20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The times that we get most discouraged, the times that we really let that get to us, it's often because we're thinking too much about ourselves, about what we want out of life, about what we want to accomplish. But if we rather focus on the Lord's purposes for our life, then we can suffer great things. And it's okay because we know that God's purposes are being fulfilled, that his will 
is being done. We need to recognize that God's work is bigger than us. Do you notice here in 1 Kings 19, God doesn't even say, Elijah, I have many more things for you to accomplish. I have much more work for you to do. He says, I have some other people that are going to do my work, and I want you to go and get them. It wasn't all about Elijah. It wasn't about what he accomplished. It was what God about what God accomplished through him and would continue to accomplish through other people. Notice back in 1 Kings 19 for a moment. Verse 4, as Elijah is um, describing his situation here, uh, it says in verse 4, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. You might as well just end my life now, because I haven't accomplished anything more than the past generation. Israel is just as messed up as it was before. What I've done hasn't changed a thing. Is that our measure of the success of our life? If, if we've accomplished more than the past generation? If, we, if we've left the world a better place? I think that's often the way we think about it. I... On the day of my death, I want to look back and know that I've left the world a better place. Brother, the world is not going to be a better place. This world is broken, and it's always going to be broken. And even within the church, you know, if, if we haven't worked out the problems that churches deal with in 2,000 years, then the church is going to continue to have to work through those problems when I'm dead and gone. Where God accomplishes his work is one soul at a time, one heart at a time that is transformed. And we'll see the fruit of that, not here in this life, not by leaving this world a better place, but by looking to another world where God will bring all the redeemed who have been transformed by his grace. We need to recognize that God's work is, is bigger than me, I cannot measure the value of my life by looking at whether or not I've left this world a better place. You know, what, one day uh, when I, I'm no longer assembling with the East Side Church of Christ, hopefully many years in the future, uh, whether or not I've left this group of people, a, a better group, is not the measure of whether or not I've been doing the Lord's work. It's one individual, one heart at a time that God is accomplishing his work and will continue to do it through other people when I'm dead and gone. There's one other lesson that I think we need to see here in 1 Kings 19, and that is the encouragement of God's people. In verse 18, God then says to Elijah, Yet I will lead 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah says, I'm all alone. Nobody's turned to the Lord. All that I've done, it hasn't profited at all. God says, no, you're not all alone, Elijah. There are many other people who are serving me. You may not be aware of them. There are many others who have not forsaken the Lord. And one of the people that Elijah anoints is 
Elisha. Notice in verse 21, um, at the very end of verse 21, it says, Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him, or ministered to him. God brings him somebody to stick close to him, to support him in his latter years. We need that kind of encouragement. We're never alone in the work of the Lord. Look look at these people around you here. We have more people with us in this room than Noah had in the ark. Than many other people throughout history. And God has provided us with the church, with an assembly, with a spiritual family for our encouragement. What what often happens is that when I'm going through times of discouragement, uh, my tendency is to want to isolate myself. You know, I'm I'm feeling all alone, and perhaps maybe to to kind of justify this feeling of aloneness, I keep myself from other people as I deal with that. Because it's hard to open up about it. It's hard to reach out to other people with it. And yet, that's exactly what God wants us to do. That when we're discouraged, we, we need that support. We need to reach out for other people around us. Notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 5, uh, as Paul talks to the brethren in Corinth about a time of great discouragement and difficulty for him, he says here in verse 5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. God comforts the depressed. How does he comfort the depressed? Well, here he comforted the depressed by the coming of Titus. And not just Titus individually, but what he reported about so many others that cared about Paul. That's part of God's solution. That's part of the great physician's uh, prescription for depression and discouragement. Is that we reach out to others who care about us. Others who are serving the Lord to support us in our uh, times of difficulty and discouragement. We need to develop the type of relationships among one another that our hearts are lifted when we see one another's faces. We need to value the bond and fellowship that we share. We need to seek out opportunities to spend with our brethren outside of these four walls. We need to, as Colossians 2 verse 2 says, to be knit together in love. And you might say, well, I I just, I don't have those type of relationships. I don't have that kind of connection with my brethren. Well, somebody has to initiate that. Somebody has to work on that. If we want those kind of relationships with our brethren, then we need to be investing ourselves in getting to know one another and developing that kind of communication, that kind of connection where we can support each other in our times of need. Let's be working on that. And yet, even if we do reach a day where we're like Noah, where it seems that everyone else in the world has forsaken the Lord, even if we reach a day where every single person in this room around you has either passed on or forsaken the Lord, we're still not alone. 
Hebrews chapter 12, and verse 1, after talking about men and women of faith at the end of chapter 11, reminds us, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There are many others who have dealt with what we're dealing with, who have gone through depression and discouragement, who have been persecuted, who have even been killed for the faith we see in Hebrews chapter 11. And yet they are our witnesses. They are our crowd surrounding us, cheering us on, encouraging us that that God was faithful to them, that God strengthened them through it, that we as well can find strength through it. Even if we find ourselves physically all alone, spiritually, we are not. You know, Elijah may not have had direct contact with those 7,000, but he knew that they were serving the Lord. We have Noah and Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David and Daniel and Paul and Peter all cheering us on. A heavenly host that will one day greet us as we join with them before the throne of God. And we have Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So what about you today? What's the solution to our depression and discouragement? Well, we need to know that God is compassionate and long-suffering, we can look to him for sympathy and mercy and grace in our time of need. We need to know that God measures success differently than we do. Our work doesn't have to be grand and glorious to accomplish his will in our lives. We need to be willing to see past our own emotions, see the greater picture of the Lord's work, let his work be our focus, let it drive our zeal, let it be our source of contentment, whatever our circumstances. We need to look to our brethren for support and encouragement, to develop relationships in which we can mutually strengthen one another and know that we're never alone. If you find yourself struggling with discouragement today, I I hope by seeing Elijah, who is a man with a nature like ours, we can find the same comfort, the same strength that God provided for him. If you're discouraged today. Don't let it drag you down. Don't let it drag you away from the Lord. Rather, let those emotions draw you towards the Lord, because he's the only one that can give you strength through it. Let it draw you towards his people who can support you as you continue in the race. If you in some way need to ask for the prayers of these brethren, if you need to confess some sin uh, of of a public nature, um, that you can bring it into the light Know that God is faithful and just to forgive. God is merciful and gracious. And you can find atonement. You can find cleansing for your sins. If you've never committed your life to the Lord, if you've never started the race in his service, won't you do that now? Won't you surrender your life fully to him so that you can say it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? If you're willing to repent of your sins, to turn away, from your old life, to hand your life over to the Lord. You can bury the old man of sin in the waters of baptism. You can be raised to walk in newness of life, strengthened, empowered, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. 
If you need in any way uh, to uh, make a need known to these brethren, won't you do so now as we stand and sing together?